You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. As you know, we're getting ready to uh, start our week of prayer for the city, uh, Winnipeg Police Services, and uh, it's a privilege to be part of this huge campaign that is going to take all year long as church by church, one church after another, we unfold to, to cover our week in prayer. And uh, so we have, I think, over 40 people signed up that have decided that this coming week they, they're going to pray for a certain day of the week or, or whatever they've signed up for, and uh, they're going to be emailed and given specific requests that morning. And so you want to sign up, you're still welcome to do so. Now, if you don't sign up, don't feel like you can't pray. I mean, even if the Lord just brings to mind some day of the week uh, the opportunity to pray, please pray that the Lord will will really impact this city, that God would indeed raise up uh, such a, an incredible community force, uh, a unity in this city, and that crime will decrease, that, that the climate of our city will be changed, that somehow at the end of the year, uh, even some of the naysayers will, will be, have to say, well, something changed this, week, this year, and that we can give God the glory, we can say... Amen. Lord, you are so good. So would you just join me now as we uh, begin to begin our week of prayer for the city of police, the police uh, services, and I'd just like to lead us and ask for prayer for us as we uh, are faithful in intercession. Let's pray. And now, Father, as we are getting ready this week to uh, join with many people that are praying year-round for this city and for the police that work, the over 1,000 uh, people that work in the city police force. We pray for them now. We pray that you would guide Chief Clunas. We pray for the, the various ones that have uh, responsibilities for other men and women. We ask you, Lord, to give, give them unity, give them good relationships with one, one another. We pray, O oh God, that you would protect them from harm and evil uh, this week. We pray, O oh God, that you would uh, watch over those that are responsible for uh, the emergencies that will take place, God, and we thank you for each one of them. We ask you, Lord, on the home front that you administer to them where there might be difficulties in marriages and in, in, uh, with children and so on. We pray for them in that level too. We ask you to just give them peace, O oh God. And we ask you for us, Lord, that we would be faithful this week to be mindful of how to pray, even if we've not signed up or not. It just that we would, uh, as opportunity is, is there, we pray that we would be faithful in prayer, vigilant in, in this uh, calling upon your name, calling upon your power to be made manifest in this city and especially in, in the police. So we give this week to you and ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have uh, been looking at the Apostle Paul, and we're getting ready to uh, start into the book of Ephesians. And uh, I was talking to Pastor Kevin and Doug this week about how we can uh, apply some of the, the theology of Paul's conversion and his theology of sanctification. And uh, the, the old saying came to mind, the old saying that the preachers of the past used to say that the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so uh, I'd like all the comfortable to... No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about that a lot in the last few days, and I've been thinking somehow intuitively, and I could be wrong, but somehow intuitively, I believe really that we're in need of more comfort than we are affliction. 
Um, when I say affliction, I, it, it's just this kind of preaching that rouses you from your complacent pew and sort of gets you in the game, gets you realizing that there's a, a whole lot of evil out there and there's a whole lot of good in Christ and, and you just need to choose who you're going to serve and come on, wake up, etc., etc. But I actually believe that we need a lot more comfort. And what I mean by that is that I think that we have really bought into a lot of lies and we have this attitude toward uh, pursuing holiness, as we talk about sanctification this morning, that, uh, that comes from wrong thinking. And in, in a nutshell, if I were to describe it, I would say that your God is way too small. That's the issue. And your sin is way too big. Now, what I just said is not true. What I said just now is not true. In other words, our God is not too small, and our sin is not too big. But what I, when I said it, what I'm meaning is that your perception of your God is way too small, and your perception of your sin in comparison to what God has available for you is way too big. And I believe that. I believe that. And so this morning, as we begin to look at this graph, and by the way, if you could just raise your hand, the ushers will hand out. Uh, if you haven't received one last week or something, you want one, uh, there's a, a graph or a diagram that I'm going to use again this morning from last week. So just put your hand up if you want one. Um, and what I'm saying is that, that uh, as we look at this, we, we need to understand uh, the God that we're speaking of. So before we even get into this diagram once again that's... Uh, up at the front here, I want to begin and end this sermon with a relational theology. And when I say a relational theology, I want to begin and end the message by clarifying that if you take all of these big theological words and ideas, and if you follow with me and understand conceptually what God did and what God is doing to set us free from sin, and yet you don't keep that connected to your relationship with Christ, I have failed miserably. And you will fail miserably in your pursuit of holiness. We cannot, we cannot pursue a godly life only with ideas and concepts. Okay? So deeper theological understanding will be to no avail unless you understand that it is your hand in the hand of Christ day by day, moment by moment, your union with Christ that is fundamental and key in everything we do. And so I begin with that statement, and I'm going to end my message this morning with a, a clarification of that understanding as well. So we began uh, last week talking about the fact that God created humanity in His image. Male and female, He created them. Together, male and female complete the the Imago Dei, the image of God that is, is in humanity. And I said last week that there is no other creature that God created that is like that. Not, not, no animals, no plant life, no, nothing in all, all of creation is like the image of God. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For we are the image and the glory of God. We reflect Him. It's incredible. And so, in, in, a, in a, the basest form we can think of, that means that in, in rational ways, in volitional ways, in emotional ways, and in relationship ways, we have a capacity. Now, that word is going to be key in our study of Ephesians, so hang on to that. 
The word capacity is going to come up a lot in Ephesians. Twice in Ephesians, Paul breaks into prayer. And the prayer that he prays is for the Ephesians to have a capacity for God. Because that, in Paul's mind, is the, the, the key to all of life is growing our capacity to be filled with all the fullness of God, he says in in Ephesians 3.19. And so here here is humanity created in the image of God with this incredible capacity and this opportunity. None other of creatures that God created have that. A cow does not come to this understanding of, who am I? What am I here for? I have a, we have a wonderful dog at home, Charlie, our golden retriever. I mean, he is a best friend indeed, but he does not take time to think about who he is or why he exists, like you and I do. You see, we were, we were hardwired to do that. We have that destiny in us. We have that capacity in us to think about who am I and why am I here? And we're also hardwired to find the answer in our relationship with our Creator, God. So what happened? Well, what happened was that there's something that occurred, we, the theologians call the fall. And so the image of God that, that, that male and femaleness reflect was broken. Human depravity does not mean that we're not capable of some good things, though. We get this wrong a lot. We see unsaved, unregenerate humanity do lots of good things. What, what the uh, fall means, what human depravity, original sin affecting us means, is that every aspect of my rational, volitional, emotional, relational, all parts of that is all tainted, twisted, broken, marred by sin. So I don't think right. I don't feel right. I don't choose right. I don't do relationship right. And, and you, the cumulative effect of all that is that I mess up my life. I'm a sinner. And I need the grace of God. Yesterday, as we had the men's breakfast, we heard uh, Speaker Ty Gammy of Living Waters Ministries here in Winnipeg speak about the image of God as this broken image that, that emptiness and voids in our lives <clears throat> causes us to try and fill that emptiness and fill those voids with something other than what God wants there. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we make substitutes for what God wants to fill our lives with. And we inherit that nature from our parents, that sinful, selfish, insecure, fearful nature. And it's, it's hardwired. Now, is it learned as well? Is it socialized into us, sin? Yes, it is. But the reason it can be socialized into us as well is because we have that inherent leaning and predisposition already toward it. Now, Reinhold Niebuhr was a theologian that spoke this way. He said that the doctrine of original sin, I love this, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Isn't that the truth? I mean, you can prove original sin just by looking at your own life or someone around you. And I like... Also, what Henry Blosher says, he says, let protesters, he's talking about original sin here, let protesters prove their independent freedom, disassociating themselves from Adam's sin in the way that they actually behave. 
Let them free themselves from that universal bondage portrayed by the Apostle Paul when he said that there is no one righteous, no one, uh, all have sinned. So, so what he's saying, I like this. this is, what he's saying is, if someone is going to say that humanity is really inherently good, not evil or sinful, the burden of proof ought to be on those individuals that say that to then therefore contradict original sin by saying, I'm going to live the, live the perfect life and I'll prove you wrong. No one ever seems to do that. We don't, we don't see anybody doing that. Jonathan Edwards said, this doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than we do of ourselves. It teaches us that we are all by nature companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which under a revelation of divine mercy tends to promote mutual compassion. You know, we should, knowing ourselves well enough, all have the testimony of Paul when he said, I'm the chief of sinners. No one knows you like you know yourself. And you should, we should all be vying for that title because no one can see into the heart of hearts that you carry. So we agree with Isaiah that we are a people of unclean lips, and we, or I am a, a man of unclean lips, I li- live among a people of unclean lips, and there's something got to be done about this. Why does society not believe that? Society believes that somehow through better education and better socialization and laws and policy making and technology and whatever other helps we can get, that somehow we can crawl out of the slime and we can get out of this human predicament of our self-destructive ways. But all the experimentation that is done in, in behavioral psychology or socializing or whatever discipline or field you want to describe, it's not working, is it? Of course, that can lead to such a pessimistic, jaded view of humanity. And I just was thinking this past week, and I did some word studies, and I found out that the word cynicism is actually a root of a Greek word that, that means uh, it's where we would get dog from, dogs, you know, like Charlie and, the, you know, canine. Even when you say cynicism, it's sort of, you've got to bare your teeth. Say it, cynicism. Bare your teeth. It actually came from the 16th century, And in the 16th century, the word came uh, to mean the idea of sneering and sarcasm. And so when someone in the 16th century would use the Greek word uh, for cynicism, they would sneer, they would be sarcastic. And uh, so that's a jaded view of humanity is that there's cynicism, you know. I think that Today, the tendency is to reverse that and to call us not dogs, but gods. You know, that, that you've got the power within you. You can do anything and, and that attitude. But see, the Bible says that we are neither dogs nor gods, that we were created in the image of God. That has been tarnished and broken, and we are in need of renovation and repair for to reclaim that, that, that story, the glory of God. So what happens then is that we're born into this world, we talked about this last week, in this condition with this nature opposed to God, under the wrath of God according to Ephesians 2, dead in sin, in this condition not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. People argue with that, but, but the person without Christ is not able not to sin. There's, it doesn't mean we can't do some good things throughout life, but 
They're not able not to sin. And so God has to intervene. And we talked last week about the word justification. It means that God declares through His Son's merit, He declares a sinner righteous. And we're freed from the penalty of sin. And this restoration begins to take place. And how did He do it? Well, He intervened by by God Himself coming to earth, sending His Son. And He lived among us, and he, and he was tempted as we are, but without sin. And so what did He do? He became the perfect priest. So that we do not need a human priest. We have the high priest, Jesus, who, who fully identifies and understands us. And, and therefore, because He's now at the right hand of the Father, can represent us before God. And so what God did in justification is he, he took all of the sin of Terry Jank and He put it on Christ on the cross. And He took all of the righteousness of Jesus and He, he put it into my account as Terry Jank, a sinner. And now I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks upon me, He sees His Son. I'm righteous in His sight. Not by any merit of my own, but because of what God has done. That is the good news. That's incredible. And so I get this new nature. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm alive to God. I am given a new relationship, an adopted child. And in this condition, I'm able to sin, but I'm able not to sin. Now, I think that in this side of the, Re the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation that took place 500 years ago... I think that we have become imbalanced. Now, when Martin Luther and other reformers started to preach justification by faith, they were bringing balance back that was twisted and out of line to understand that the, the righteous can only live by faith in what God has done. But, but we have so much seen that that has shaped the way we think about theology is that we now have somehow a diminished view of that next phase of life and that is sanctification. And of course, God sees them as one whole package. We were saved in order to be made holy. We were saved for something. And too often in, the, in, in evangelical churches, we, we emphasize getting people saved, the born again, the receive Christ thing, and then we, we kind of forget about it. We don't, but that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And so... Sanctification, then, is this growing on to be experientially holy, not just judicially. And uh, we get a new nature. And the work of sanctification is, is God's work. What does it mean, I'm able to sin and able not to sin? We had a discussion at our life group this past Thursday about this. It, it really comes down to this being in the state of already but not yet. I'm already saved and declared righteous before God, and yet I'm still able to sin because sin, the flesh, the thing that, I, I, that residue of the old life is in me. It's going to be with me till the day I die. So I'm not suggesting able not to sin, this old Latin phrase, is, it, is not suggesting that we can live a perfect life. It's just that we have this capacity in ourselves to be so filled with God that we have the resources to resist temptation and to choose what is better and good. That's what God has said to us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory or from glory to glory, from one degree to another as we depend on the Holy Spirit. 
Listen to uh, what an old Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, said. He said, The godly may act faintly in religion. The pulse of their affections may be low. The exercise of grace may be hindered as when the course of water is stopped. Instead of grace working in the godly, corruption may work. Instead of patience, murmuring. Instead of heavenliness, earthliness. Thus lively and vigorously may corruption be in the regenerate. They may fall into enormous sins. This is talking about Christians here. They may fall into enormous sins. But though, there, though grace may be drawn low, it is not dry. Though grace may be abated, it is not abolished. Though it may suffer an eclipse, it is not a dissolution. A believer may fall from some degrees of grace, but not the state of grace. Now that, that's speaking very clear language about the incredible God that we're talking about, who is able to take sinners and make them righteous. The God who began the good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So when you look on this diagram and you look at that little pathway and the Christian there, you might think about where are you on this journey? What is it that represents you, the ups and the downs? You have that ability to grow in holiness and you have the ability to fall. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Great Divorce, describes a scenario of a young man that's pursuing holiness, a Christian, <clears throat> and he has the proverbial little lizard, the red lizard on his shoulder, except it's not the devil that's being epi epitomized there. It's, it's inward sin that he identifies that red lizard with. And the, the red lizard is, is harassing the young man and tormenting him, and an angel comes along from God and says, you know, I can rid you of that thing. And the man says, uh, I can finally be rid of this thing that torments me. But then he realizes that the way that the angel is going to rid him of that little red lizard is by killing it. And so the man begins to sort of backstep. He says, well, you know, you know I, maybe can, I can get along and maybe if you could just kind of remove him for a while and give me a break or maybe another time would be better and so on. And the angel is, is not going to be shaken on this. The angel responds by saying, the moment, this moment contains all moments. Well, the lizard now is realizing that his fate is in the hand of this young man, and so he adds to the conversation, and he says this, Be careful. The angel can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from him, and, and, and he will. Then you'll be without me forever. It's not natural, you know. You know, it's, it's, it's not natural. You'll only be sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's just a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it's not for us. I know there are no real pleasures, only dreams in this world, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I know, I, I know I've pushed it too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but real nice dreams, sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You see, the, this dialogue and this rationalizing that's going on with sin, this skating. So we have this love-hate relationship with sin where we're able to sin and we're able not to sin as a Christian. We have this incredible thing of being able to run to sin like a companion, a security blanket. Self-pity can feel really good sometimes. Grudge-keeping can really feel, it can meet a real need or lust, or gossip. And then, of course, we know that's not right. It's like a dog on a leash, you know, when we don't want to be seen with the dog, but then when he, in a quiet, lonely moment, we, we yank the chain and we, we indulge in our sin of choice, our comfort. 
That's the way we are in relationship with sin. It can be that way. Elf Bell, I was talking to Pastor Elf this past Thursday morning at our prayer group, and he says, we rationalize our way into sinning. Sin is like a storm raging, like wild horses out of the pen. And in the middle of it all, we can, we can talk ourselves into sinning. That's what Pastor Elf said. Well, Paul wrestled with sin, and we, we read about it in chapter 7. In uh, chapter 7, he talks, and you can read it sometime, the good that I want to do, I don't do, the, and, and the evil I, you know, and the, the evil that I don't want to do, I do. And if, if that's going on, well, then it's got to be sin working in me. And, and he, he has this wrestling going on until he cries out, wretched man that I am. The question I have for you is, what is it that makes you cry out, wretched man or woman that I am? And then are you going to come to the conclusion that it's just too big of a wretchedness? Or are you going to come to the conclusion Paul had when he said, thanks be to God through Christ? Well, let's take a look at this word sanctify. And um, I want to just draw out from the Old Testament three meanings of the word. A.B. Simpson talks about the word sanctify in the Old Testament. The first meaning is to separate or set apart. And uh, you don't need to be convinced of this. If you know your Bible, you know that all throughout redemptive history, God separated people out. He started with Adam and Eve, I suppose. He started then with Noah. He took that Noah family and, and, and preserved mankind. Then he go on and we see Abraham out of all the peoples on this, Abraham. And then he said, I'm going to make you and I'm going to set you apart. And then he took Israel, the nation of Israel, and he said, you of all people, I'm going to take you and set you apart. This idea of sanctify means to be set apart. David, of all the sons of Jesse, the youngest, the one that even wasn't called to the table, is set apart to be the king of Israel. And the word church, ecclesia, means set apart ones, called out ones. You and I are called out. What does it mean? It means that for us to be sanctified, it means that before you ever found God, God found you. And as we start thinking about that, we're going to get into Ephesians 1 in about a month, and we're going to see the doctrine of election is just staring us in the face. What an incredible God to set apart people for His own mercy and nothing that is inherently deserving. Then, secondly, the Old Testament meaning of sanctify means to dedicate. And again, you know this. You, you understand the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament or the temple. And all the little cups and bowls were sanctified. How did, what did that mean? It means they were dedicated just for one exclusive use. A priest couldn't take a bowl or a cup home and say, I'm, I'm going to just borrow this for a while from my family. No, they, they were wholly, exclusively for the temple. And, and, and that's what Paul says. Paul takes up that theme in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. You are a dedicated person if you've come to know Christ. You're exclusively for Him. Last week, as we heard testimonies from three young people, they, they all had this journey of, of playing with, with Christian faith passed down to them from their parents till they came to this point of understanding that I live for the glory of God. I'm dedicated to Him. That's all that my life matters for. And then the third re- or meaning of the word sanctify is, is the word to fill. The word consecrate in Hebrew actually is the picture of cupped hands and water being poured in, filling up your hands. 
cupped hands, to consecrate. And so sanctify means, means to fill. So, so if we get a picture of these three meanings and we put them together, what is God doing in sanctifying you and making you holy? Number one, He's setting you apart from the old life that you were living. And you had to respond to that. Your response was repentance, turning from that and turning to Him, to Jesus, to see in Him God that could save you. And then when He has set you apart, He's not just setting you apart from something, but for something. And so you were set apart for the purpose of becoming holy. You were dedicated. You were, you were you're holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to God. And then, and then thirdly, once He has set you apart and He has dedicated you for a purpose to bring Him glory, He fills you. He fills you. And because we're leaky vessels, He has to keep on filling us. We keep on filling ourselves with us. And, and we have to empty ourselves. We confess our sin. We, we, we go to God and we say, God, I know I messed up again. Or God, I know I'm struggling with forgiveness or whatever it might be. And He fills us up again and again and again. You've heard the story about the, I think I've told it here, about the horse being chipped out of stone by a sculptor, and someone comes along and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm, I'm making a horse, and how are you going to do that? I'm just going to knock off everything that doesn't look like a horse. And so that's kind of a, an opposite way of describing what Jesus is doing, what God's doing in you. He's, he's taking your life in the rough. And he's knocking off everything that doesn't look like his son. A, a more positive way to think about it is another story that I read just recently. And it's about a man that, that bought a home. And, and this house was an old, decrepit house. And, and the owner that was selling the house wanted to kind of make it more presentable before the possession date. And so he started to kind of paint the front and fix some of the door hinges and stuff. And the, the buyer came along and said, no, 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 don't touch it. I don't want the house. I just want the lot. You know, and, and see, that's really what God is doing with us. You and I, you and I have been kind of, from the day that we, we were self-conscious, whatever age that was for you, and from the day that you were self-conscious, you entered into this self-improvement project. I've got to be good. I've got to try to be good. I've got to please God. I've got to, you know. And, and you, you've been working on yourself ever since then. And God comes along in Jesus and he says, you know, I don't, I can't use what you've made of yourself. But you, know, you, know what it, you want to know what? Your life, your body, your life, spirit, soul, and body is the perfect site for my temple. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to clear away everything that you've been doing to try and be so good, and I'm going to start fresh. And I'm going to... Start with a foundation that's solid, and it's in Jesus Christ and in His righteousness. You see, then, then what happens is that this broken image is now being reclaimed and rebuilt, and you begin to reflect the person that God wants you to be. You cannot do that yourself. God has to do that in, in you, and you cooperate with Him. So what does he use? Well, <clears throat> there's so many things that God uses in our lives. One of the problems that happens in our lives is that we become sin-obsessed instead of God-obsessed. 
It's like I said at the beginning when I said that your God is too small and your sin is too big. There's a story by F.B. Meyer. It talks about a woman who, who um, had a little boy that, that developed scarlet fever. I, I, rec- I know a little bit about that because my mother had scarlet fever when she was a little girl. And, and she remembers this big red ribbon that had to be on the door. And so the postman, the milkman, whoever came by had to know that, that home, scarlet fever, be careful, you know. She had to be inside. She missed a year of school. And this woman, the story is told by F.B. Meyer about a woman, a mother, and, and the son develops scarlet fever, and she says to the son, I am going to stay with you until you're well. And she did. She stayed with her son day in and day out until he was well and overcame scarlet fever. And F.B. Meyer, in, in sharing this story, says this, Do you think that she loved the boy less because it took so long for him to become well. And then he adds, he says, And do you think then, why do you think that God would love you less because it it is taking you so long to overcome some of the sins that you're wrestling with? Your God is too small. Your sin is too big. Myers goes on and he says this, and I want you to think about you saying this to your soul, yourself. O soul, you have thought ill of your God. You thought that because you have so often fallen that God was tired of you. You forget that His tender mercies are infinite and that He will never let you go. Never leave your side, never until in heaven he kisses your face where there will be no more effect of sin upon you. Your God will kiss your soul into health. (laughs) You see, we we have this twisted idea that somehow we can out-sin God's immense love and mercy and grace to snatch us from the fire. The one who began the good work in you is able to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? That's the the gospel. Anything else from that is is a half gospel, is a, a perverted gospel. I'm not suggesting you just run out and freely sin. Because boy, I tell you, if you start doing that, God's gonna bring you under discipline. That could be nasty. But I'm telling you, if you, you, you wrestle with sin you did 20 years ago, well, welcome to the club. But guess what? God is in the business of making you righteous, making you like his son Jesus. And though you may not see it, though you may not see it, you are being sanctified. You're being made holy. You're not the same person that you were back then. What does God use? Well, God uses relationships. Let me begin as we get ready to conclude. Let me begin by saying God, God uses relationships. And maybe as soon as I said that, relationships, what, what entered your mind was all the good relationships. <laughs> if we could just pick and choose the ones that God would use, right? You know, he uses friends and family. and The fact is, is that on this graph here, it could be that this little hypothetical line, that it's right here in this dip, 
that a relationship went bad. And it was in this humbling, awful part of the journey when they, they, this person was awakened to see that, that they're going to need the grace of God in a new way. And so they, they begin then to be broken and to be rebuilt and refashioned in the image of God, but God used a damaged relationship. Sometimes I think that we do in our lives as we go through relationships and there's in the, in the wake of our path, there, there is these damaged relationships and we just kind of close the door and put a sign on it that says, keep out, do not enter. And we think we can just move on and not have to worry about that. But God sometimes knocks on the door and says, I've got to get in there because I've got some things to show you because out of the overflow of your heart in that relationship, all kinds of stuff came out that I can deal with. And if you'll just let me in there, I'll take you back there and we'll learn some things together. You'll grow in holiness. But if you don't go back, if you're not willing, you'll, you'll not unpack all the riches of glory in Christ Jesus for your own sanctification. You see, we run from the painful places. God says, that's where I'm going to do most of my good work. Relationships. Could be a girlfriend, boyfriend. It could be a teacher. It could be a mom or a dad. Could be a former spouse, could be a coach. God has some things to do there and say. So it may be a good moment to mention the Who I Am in Christ seminar that we're offering. And uh, some of you need to take this. Some of you need to enter in. You could grow immensely in this 12 weeks of, of just learning how to understand what, what Christ is doing in you, who you are in Him. And uh, picking a friend, your choice, uh, picking a person that can then walk through that with you. You meet every second week with the person, and on the other weeks you're, you're meeting in a group and being taught. The friend doesn't come to the teaching. You just meet privately with the friend. But in the process, you're able to journey through and, and self-disclose and, and look at some of the stuff together that God has for you. And uh, that's an incredible, important step for some of you to take. I encourage you, sign up. There's an opportunity here. Orientation is just a couple weeks away, and, and uh, you, you could find this is a, a pathway to, to some more wholeness. Besides relationships, God uses circumstances, of course. And, in fact, it's, it's the circumstances of your life that we end up talking about in our relationships, isn't it? I mean, I... I, I I just love our life group. I see our life group growing. And I see it's in the painful areas of life where people are willing to open up with each other. That authentic fellowship takes place. And so it's, it's in the circumstances of life that God meets you. And you need relationships to walk through those circumstances with. These are the two key areas that God is going to be working to bring about your holiness, growth in your life. So if you walk alone through those things, you're, you're missing opportunity. 
You know, we're masters at controlling our circumstances. We're masters at controlling our environment. So, so God has to bring what we call providential circumstance upon us that we can't control. And God is at work in, in those places too. This dip might be a, an incredibly difficult circumstance that somebody faced that initially made them want to just be angry at God. You know, the, the thing is, is that just God is like a good parent, his, our Heavenly Father. And so He's more interested in our reactions as His children than the actions of the children of some other parent. I don't know if you're like that, but that's, that's always, the, Pat and I always are more concerned and we're more concerned about the reactions of our children to whatever took place than the actions of some other kid. I don't care about whatever that kid says or what his parents let him do or whatever. I'm concerned about the reactions of my child. God is like that. So how do you respond in those difficult, damaged relationships? How do you respond to those difficult circumstances? That's what God the Father is really interested in in your life. Because what happens, you see, is that in the critical moments like that, when, our, when, our, when we take a dip in that, then, then what we're inclined to do is to turn to our comfort food. We're inclined to turn to the things that are going to give us life, the, the security blanket, the things that are going to help us trust in and get through, instead of to, to God who wants to fill the emptiness. And so the thing is, the, the questions that, that we ask here are, where do we turn for comfort? Where, what do we fill our emptiness with? What replaces God in our lives? It could be something inherently sinful. It could be something absolutely neutral. Someone said to me this past week that media, all the media stuff, the gadgets and stuff, for them is a mood-altering drug. I'd never heard that language. Their, their media stuff is a mood-altering drug. They go there. Nothing wrong with media stuff, but is it, is, it a, is, it a, is it replacing God? Do you go to God for comfort instead? So to conclude, I want to just say this, that we're going to end where we began, that wisdom is found in learning how to interpret these things on your journey. I'd encourage you to go home and think about this graph. Describe some X's of critical moments in your journey when Christ first got a hold of your life and you knew you were a Christian? And, and what is it that God has done along the way in a relationship, in a circumstance, to, to get your attention and to cause you to grow? What is it? And, and then the key in this is you interpreting properly. How do you interpret those things? And, and learning how to do so can be a, an important part of your sanctification. So I want to say in conclusion that I learn both from my own experience and failures as well as from the Bible and what Scripture teaches me. I have learned, and Paul's been a key part of that, I have learned that there's got to be more of a focus on God and less of a focus on sin. Okay, so Paul, Paul when he's writing, he learned the secret. He says in Galatians 5, 16, he says, live by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We turn that around and we think, if I just don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, if I can just avoid that, then I'll be living by the Spirit somehow automatically. 
But that's not at all. You see, you, you get stuck in fighting the wrong fight. Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. We end up fighting the fight of the flesh. And flesh fighting flesh is always going to be a losing game. And so we come back to this idea of not being so sin-obsessed. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Doug commented that we don't want to waste our time on sin management, which is what we can often look like we're doing. Just trying to manage our sin instead of really getting so God-focused that sin isn't as much part of it. I know that for me, when I am preoccupied with sin, when I am trying hard to resist sin, avoid temptation, stay accountable with brothers, control my thought life and all that stuff, I know I'm fighting the wrong battle right away. I, it just take a moment of self-reflection. I realize I'm fighting the wrong fight right now. It's just a matter of time before I'll fall. See, fighting the good fight of the faith is being Christ-obsessed, not sin-possessed and, and obsessed. And Paul knew that. So when we get into Ephesians, we're going to see Paul talk about being in Christ, in Him. Because union with Jesus, relationship to Christ, was fundamental to all this theology that Paul talks about. 164 times in his 13 letters in the New Testament, he refers to being in Christ, in Him. Because Paul knew that he was nothing on his own, that he needed Christ in him and him in Christ in order to have the victory. And so, I would encourage you, um, draw near to God. And uh, I wanted you to stand with me right now. We're going to conclude the service. And uh, I'm going to ask us to put up a scripture that will be our meditation as we conclude and again, it, it's a comforting word. It takes the focus off of our performance and it gets the focus on to where it should be in God. And so I'm going to ask that uh, just in this moment you would uh, say this with me and then I'll conclude with a word of prayer. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Father, now as we dismiss ourselves from this place, would you be merciful, O Lord, to every one of us? Would you help us, O God, to, to be able to rise up above the things that would harass us? And would you help us to get our gaze fully on you, O Lord Jesus. You who have, has, has no trouble with sin. You who has, has no trouble living it out in the righteous life that we're called to. Help us, O Lord, to get our eyes on you. Fill us so much this week that we would not have thought, time, or energy, emotionally even, for sin. And Lord, occupy us this week with the things that would glorify your name so that we might be found doing your business. Lord, I ask for every person in this room that has come here today with a sense of somehow hopelessness, that they would leave in Jesus' name with a sense of hope upon them and that that hope would be founded in you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Go in peace.